right. So it's good to get back into the book of Ephesians as we have just um, been reminded of Easter. Really, every Sunday is Easter. Every Sunday is Resurrection Day. Every Sunday, the church gathers on the first day of the week because that's when Jesus is risen from the dead. So that one day a year reminds us of that, right? And, well, as we come out of Easter, now we come into Ephesians chapter 4. And it's very appropriate because in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we've been talking about all that God has done for us in Christ. And, and now, it's, 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 well, it's been in chapters 1, 2, and 3 all about what God has done, the, 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 the truth, that position that he's given us. And now, in chapters 4 to 6, there's going to there's gonna be a whole lot more. What do we do with what we've been given? How do we then live in light of it? In fact, chapter 4 starts with, therefore. It leans back on, because of everything that has been said, because of all that God has done, how then will we step into that? How then will we live in light of that? And so, we have been united with Christ in his death. We have been raised with Jesus as members of the body of Christ so that we too, like Jesus, can live in new life. And now Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are going to show us what does that life together as the body of Christ, what does that new life in Jesus look like? What are some of the aspects of it that we need to be aware of as his church? Well, the first thing, it's kind of like going to the zoo, is we all need to stick together. If we're going to do this, we need to do that. God delights, actually, that we live in this new life that he's given us, not merely as individuals. We do live it individually. But he delights that we live it individually together as the body of Christ. And so there's essential unity that he speaks to first. It's kind of like, well, there's a note in your bulletin about things to pray for. And please be praying for that. We actually paused and and prayed together as a church along those lines to, to have unity as a church and unity in the building team as we press forward with this building project. That God would grant us favor. Lord, give us favor with the county officials as we meet together. Help them to understand our vision and how to do this and how to proceed in a way that honors you and our relationships with them. Give us an opportunity to serve others along the way as we as we do this together god in the process as well as in the results that we need to be together as a church right unity is important well a task like that is is really good for reminding the church of how in all that we do in the far more important things rather than building a building, of of building up the body of Christ together, of inviting others into God's family, that these are things that we do together and we do well when we are unified together around the core essentials. So what are those? What is that core essential? What is that essential unity of the church? Where do we find it and how do we keep it? Because before Paul tells us much now, as God's church, in what we're supposed to be doing, and especially we're going to look at a lot of that in terms of how it applies individually as well, he's careful to first keep us together. It's kind of like we get in the gates there at the zoo, and he says, okay, now, everybody stick together. We're going to walk through all of the stuff, all these paths, all these areas. We're going to go to the Africa section. We're going to go to the panda section, the Asia section. We're going we're to go to the monkey house. 
but, but we need to stick together as we do it. And as we do that, we'll also share in the discoveries. We'll share in some of that, uh, uh, the, um, the aspects of the journey. We'll share in it together even in the delight that some of us find there. We'll share those things together. So it's an essential unity. Where do we find it and how to keep it? I'm going to begin... Well, let's read the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Then I'll talk about in the last three verses the, the essentials of unity. And then we will look at, I want to spend a little more time on how do we maintain that. So we'll step into where is our unity and then how do we preserve it. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 1, and you do have an outline in the back of your bulletin, and actually if it's directing you to the church Bible, you'll find us on page 977. So Ephesians chapter 1 and verse, or 4 and verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain or making every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all and in all. There is that we are to make every effort to preserve this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are not to produce a unity together. We're not to come up with some agreed upon unity. There is a unity that God has given us and we're to maintain it. We're to preserve it. We're to, we're to guard that and nurture it. It is important to God that which he has given us together. And so we're to work for that together. But we don't produce it. We don't define it on our terms. It has been given to us. It, there's not a negotiable focus. We're not going to dumb everything down to the lowest possible common denominator so that we can all agree together, arrive at a place, let's say, well, I believe in God, you believe in God, we all believe in God, that's good. What God do we believe in? There are many lords and many gods, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. But there's one that we have to do. So there, there might, some people think, be multiple ways, but here he says there is one Spirit, there is one Lord, there is one Father. That's going to leave a lot of people out. People that do not understand of the, the God that we sang about, the God who is three in one, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There are many around us who would say, no, no, we're Christians like you, but they do not believe in the same Jesus. They do not believe in the same Spirit. There's, there is one saving faith that we have in Christ alone that unites us. Um, I came across an interesting quote this week recently um, that uh, well-known television theologian, Steve Harvey, he said this, there is no one way to heaven. There is no one way to paradise. Well, that's a strong statement. How do you back that up, Dr. Harvey? Well, it's like television. Now there's 800 channels on cable, and they're all pretty entertaining. Well, I'm not sure I buy that. So, he says, he concludes from that, I'm pretty sure that to get to heaven, there's got to be more than one route. 
because somebody's watching another channel or taking another channel than you they're still getting entertained and so they're probably still getting to heaven now that's just wrong on so many levels now having seen a little of Paul Harvey or Steve Harvey this is definitely not Paul Harvey seeing Steve Harvey here and there uh, I'm not terribly surprised that, that, that this comes from him but but what has gone wrong here? First of all, he misses it on so many levels. First of all, the issue is not going to heaven. Going to heaven is incidental. Maybe I shock you by that. But going to heaven is not the point. Being reconciled, restored back into right relationship with God is the point. And if you are reconciled and restored, once who were enemies of God, outsiders, rebellious against him and his will and his purposes, but now in Jesus you have been restored into right relationship with God, then with him is where you belong. And of course that's where you would be, whether it's in heaven, whether it's in his kingdom, whether it's on the new earth, whether it's in the new Jerusalem, that you will be where you belong. So the issue is not how do you get to heaven the issue is how can I be rightly restored to God again well still he says well there are all kinds of ways there are all kinds of channels well I'm a little confused first of all I I would have to conclude that Xfinity cannot get me to eternity okay but I'm a little concerned by the logic here because there are 800 channels there must be 800 ways to get right with God I'm not sure how you get there from there this is an example of what has happened in our society at a whole different level a whole dumbing down level it used to be the problem in school that Johnny can't read no offense Johnny the problem used to be described as Johnny can't read but the problem is no longer that Johnny can't read in fact the problem is not even that Johnny can't think the problem is that Johnny thinks that feeling is thinking that's evidenced here by well there's 800 channels that people can watch whatever channel so there certainly must be 800 ways there is not there is a unity but that unity is only found it is the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace it is a unity that God has bound us together in and let's define that because it it is not as wide as some people wish it were and it is probably not as narrow as some of us think it might be okay what is God's essential unity for his church? First of all, there is one body. There is a new, a new humanity that God has made where he has brought diverse peoples together and brought them together in one body. He's united us into a new humanity through his one body on the cross, and that new union is called the body of Christ that God has formed his church by Jesus' death for us in our place and we are made part of that body but that church, that one body of Christ is, is across all peoples and it is through time it is from the day of Pentecost forward till now and stretches into the future that God has formed his church, the body of Christ it's far bigger than we realize now it's not all inclusive of everybody it is the body of Christ it is those who are in Christ but this body you know it's a strange thing if you, if you travel some you might see this when you visit a, a large European cathedral 
As we were in missions in Africa and we'd fly back and forth, normally flight connections would take us through Europe. And uh, I remember one time we had a long layover and I'm wandering around and I'm getting to visit these huge cathedrals in London. There's Westminster Abbey and then there's St. Paul's Cathedral. And I don't remember which of these two. But it, it, it's true in both places. There are people buried in church. Not buried out behind the church. There are people buried in church. And sometimes be careful where you're walking because you're walking over somebody's, the, the, uh, the stone that makes the floor is actually somebody's gravestone. Other places, you look around and scattered amidst the pews that have been there for hundreds of years, there's this huge sarcophagus. And it's like, oh, it's good to see Lord Nelson in church today. Well, Lord Nelson is in church every Sunday. In fact, he's there every day, at least his body is. It's a weird thing. Why would they do that? I mean, you feel like you're, you're going to worship in a mausoleum. But the statement that is being made by providing the burial for prominent people within the church, visible to the church. Now, there's not room to have all burials there. You'd fill the church. That's how some of us increase the membership roles, I guess. But, but what, you, what you do teach the church by that is God's church continues. We are members of his body and continue together in union that he has given us together in Christ beyond this mere mortal life. There is that. The church is bigger than we realize. There is one body, the body of Christ, and every local congregation is an expression of that body. Every local congregation is not a part of the body of Christ. Often we would think of it that way, that each church is a part of the body of Christ, which means that church is over there, their hand, this church, their feet, this church, their mouth, this church, their ears, this church, their leg, this church, their... Well, we better not talk about what part that church is. But each church is a different part of the body. That's not true. Each church is a local manifestation of the body of Christ. And so each church, each local congregation is led together as a body of many members with various giftings led by one head. If God has made one body that we were a part of, and that body which is far bigger and beyond us greater than we can grab hold of if we're going to participate and guard and preserve and work for the unity of the body we will do that in a local manifestation of that body if there's one body if we're going to participate in it is to nurture this unity by participating joining in, jumping in getting involved, being a part of putting your gifting, your unique makeup by God's grace into service together with others in the body of Christ there's one spirit, one animating unifying spirit of God it's not my own spirit, it's not a particular church spirit or personality, but there is one spirit of God that indwells every believer and so then, one of the ways we preserve unity, one of the places we find it is by walking together in the Spirit. I remember when I was in the Air Force, they, they, they had this senseless exercise that we spent weeks on trying to get it right. And that was 60-plus young men 
who are formed together out on a big patch of asphalt, marching around in squares and circles and this way and up and down, reversing direction, and all at the shouting and bellowing and yelling of one drill sergeant. You know, after I got out of basic training, I hardly ever marched again. What was the point in any of that? I mean, we don't march off to battle. We have planes for that, for goodness sakes. But the whole purpose in that exercise was to take a group of 60-plus individuals and mold them into a unit who would move and live and serve together as a greater unity of one rather than individuals going whatever direction they wanted. And so, one of the things they taught us was to be in step together. And Paul uses that analogy. Paul uses that language when he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And you know how we're going to experience the unity God has given us by having the same Spirit indwelling each of us? If I'm being led by the Spirit, and you are walking in step with the Spirit, we will find ourselves in harmony together. We will find ourselves in step and going the same direction. To the extent that I'm following myself, I'm going my own way, I'm leaning to my own desires rather than in step with the leading of the Spirit. That's when I'm going to be out of step with the unity that God has given us and created for us in the church. Just as you were called with one hope of your calling, God has given us a glorious hope set before us, and he prays that we would know it. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened so that by God's Spirit you would know, in chapter 1, verse 18, what is the hope of his calling. That you would know God's glorious future for you in Jesus. It is important that you grab hold of that so that that calling, that glorious future, that far better ahead of you sets the direction of the course of your life today. And as we are pulling in the same direction, we will find ourselves connected to better connected better together we will find ourselves more in one mind and one heart together in the gospel as we are genuinely seeking to grab others to go with us into the same glorious future that god has given us in jesus there's one goal and what you look for in the future you what you what you set your attention on will direct the decisions of your life Sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, but what you are setting your desires on are go is going to influence your choices. And so Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. And then when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. Set your attention and your affections, your desires, your, your ambitions on God's glorious future for us, not on the various attractions and distractions around us. And there, as we are pulling in the same direction towards that shared hope, we will find ourselves sacrificing together, working towards it together. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one Lord. We share the same Savior. We share the same Master. We share the same head of the body. We preserve that unity. We maintain. We guard and protect. We nurture that unity that God has given us by then, as members of His body, yielding to our one Master. There's one line that I remember perhaps more than any other from the very first pastor that I had. This goes back 38 years or more. 
I remember as he was teaching us the Gospel of Luke, and he got to the point, and he thought it so humorous, so ironic, that Jesus would point out to his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Jesus says, and do what you want? If he's Lord, we do what he wants, and we all have one Lord. We have one boss that we ultimately answer to, and it's the same one. And he's not, aren't you glad he's not one of those bosses that pits one against the other and, and tries to get people after one another so that he easily stays on the top? Jesus has no worries about staying on top. In fact, because he has no worries at all about staying on top, Jesus dove to the bottom of the pile for us. We have one Lord, one Master. As we submit to his will, we'll find ourselves all on the same page. It's like in an orchestra with instruments, and I, know, I don't know a lot about music, but you can even have different, different sheets that the different instruments need to play off of, and yet as all those instruments and all those sections are following the same conductor, there's a beautiful harmony that can emerge out of that. They go their own way. They do what they want. They do the little jazz improv in the middle of the orchestra, and who knows what will happen. They better be together on that. We have one Lord who leads us, directs us, and we preserve unity by submitting to him. We have one faith. I wanted this one faith to be that body of faith that we believe in, that body of doctrine that Paul says, I wanted to write to you about the, the, um, the once for all delivered to the saints faith. Where Paul warns about the faith that some are, are straying from, the faith that some are denying, the faith, the body of his teaching that he has handed down to Timothy, and that Timothy is to hand down to others who will be faithful to teach others also. I want it to be that, that, that faith that we share together as a church. Look at our statement of faith, download it from the website, and go through those pieces. And if we agree on all these things together, then we are in unity. But God's unity is bigger than that. The, the, the faith here is the same faith that has occurred four times already. It is not the faith. There's no article. There's no the. It is faith, trust, belief in Jesus. Five times in chapters 1, 2, and 3, faith has already been described. And each, each time it's pointing to our faith in Jesus, that faith by which we are saved. And there is our unity together, that we have one shared trust we have a, a soul, singular confidence. My hope and your hope are together built in nothing less than Jesus' righteousness alone. In Christ alone, he is our hope. He is our trust. Our confidence is in the same one, and that is the essential unity of the church together. Churches can have a lot of different cultural expressions, we can have a lot of different even theological emphasis. There are charismatic and there are reformed and there are dispensationalists and there are Baptists that don't get along with any of them. But we have all of Jesus Christ in common. We have one faith in him and that is the essential. And whether you're high church or lower church, whether you have all kinds of liturgical stuff, the problem comes in when a lot of that liturgical stuff and traditions of church get in the way of faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. We have one faith. 
And if we're talking about then the shared unity that we have together in Christ, it would be good to pause right here and say, do we? Do we have the same faith? Do we share together? Do you share with the one sitting next to you? Do we have the same faith in Jesus who loved us and came into this humanity to die in our place? that through his resurrection out of the dead that we could have new life in him. That by paying for our guilt, by taking on our shame as our substitute, that he makes us right with God the Father. Do you believe that? Have you said, yes, God, I believe you concerning Jesus, your son, as my Savior? That's the shared faith that unites us. And when you have an argument with a brother or sister in Christ, next time you have a difference about something, and differences can be important. Don't get me wrong. There are matters of doctrine that are very important to me. But most important above all else is my faith in Jesus, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's an essential unity that God has given in this church. There's one Lord, there's one faith in him that is expressed then in one baptism. A baptism is a unifying thing from the church. It's not always. A lot of times we can get all wrapped up in mode of baptism, but the essential of baptism in the church from the beginning with echoes of John the Baptist in the background when the church begins at Pentecost and they follow Jesus' commission to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So it's baptized into a confession of faith. Peter tells those assembled in in Acts chapter 2 when they ask the question, what shall we do? We crucified the Lord of glory. What shall we do? What can we do now? What is God going to do to us now? And Peter says to them, believe and be baptized. And he clarifies the whole baptism thing later in his letter when he says, baptism saves you, not the washing away of water. It's not like the Hebrew washing, the Jewish washings of the Old Testament, although they tell us something about it. The Hebrew, the Jewish washings of the Old Testament, and thus John's washing, or baptism, were a declaration that I am unclean before God and I need to be made clean. So it was a ceremonial statement, a ceremonial confession. And so today, as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 6, baptism is a ceremonial confession that I believe that I did need to be made clean. And that I was made clean because I was united in Romans 6 language. I was united with Jesus in his death. And as many of us were baptized, were baptized into his death, and so also we were raised with Jesus up out of death so that we also should walk in new life. And that's what we say when we are baptized. And that's why baptism is when a person has believed, Peter says, believe and be baptized. We are, in the first, in the first century, in the, in, the, in the early church, baptism was normally, uh, it was the statement of, I believe. I believe, and that's how I declare that faith then to the church at large. I love to have the church gathered together. Whether baptisms occur here, whether baptisms occur at a lake or at a river, but the church gathered together for that. Because it is a statement that I have been joined by God together into this one body through one faith in one Lord by one Spirit. 
See how it all fits together into an essential unity that is centered in God has made us new together in Jesus. God has done that. One God has done that. There is one God and Father of all. God is exclusive. There is only one God. The cultures and societies may think there are lords many and gods many, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, but for us there is one Lord. There is one God. There is one God and Father of all. God is exclusive. There is one God. God is also inclusive. He is the God and Father of all. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever, whoever, anybody, even you, even me, whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. God is inclusive. There is one God and Father of all who is over all, who is through all, who is in all. That God is indwelling us by his spirit. That God is working through us as the body of Christ. Again, you see the Trinity at play. God is not, there's not the God of Israel, the God of the, the Ephesians, Artemis, the God of Athens, Athena, the God of Rome, Roma, or maybe the emperor cults. There are, people chase after all these other things, but there is one God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he has given us a unity in a bond of peace. God has made peace for us together. In relationship together, God has made peace between us and him in Jesus on his cross, dying in our place. That's an essential unity. The essential unity is not salvation, however we define it, on whatever channel we, it, we, we come through. No, there is a unity in the salvation that God has provided in Jesus Christ by faith in him expressed then as a shared faith with the rest of his church that he has brought us together in by his spirit to worship the one true and living God. That's an essential unity. And there's going to be a lot to build on from there. But when Paul says the church has a unity that transcends cultures and even trans transcends various denominations, the non-negotiable is how God has brought us into right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And then we live in that together. We preserve that unity. We guard that unity. We maintain it. We look after it. We nurture it. If that's our unity, that shared salvation by faith in Jesus, if that is our unity that God has brought us to by his spirit, how do we keep it? We'll look at the first three verses. I therefore a prisoner of the Lord I there a prisoner for the Lord urge you he could say Paul an apostle and at times when the core doctrine of how is it that people are made right with God when that was, was being threatened by an emphasis on obeying laws and keeping rules and what we do to earn God's approval when that is threatened, Paul comes out strong, both barrels blazing. Paul, an apostle, not of men nor from men, but by God. He comes out in full authority when that message is at risk. But here, 
speaking to believers within the church. He says, I, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, he humbles himself. He takes a lowly position among them for the Lord, in service to the Lord and his will, I urge you. He does not command, he urges, he implores, he pleads. So Ephesians 4 and verse 1 starts the same way that Romans chapter 12 does. Therefore, by the mercies of God, therefore I urge you, I beseech you, I plead with you, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's the same tone. There's a humility that's here. Now we're going to move in chapter 4, we're going to move into the commands, but the moral imperatives that we're going to see in these, four chap- in the, in these next three chapters, they stand on the gospel indicatives of chapters 1, 2, and 3. What God has done for us in Jesus, described in the gospel, is the basis for all that we're going to do in following him. To live this new life together is not keeping the clubhouse rules, or else you're going to get kicked out. But it's sharing together and thus living out together the same salvation. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To walk worthy of the calling. That's not an instruction to measure up. That's not an instruction or a command to be worthy of what God has done. I cannot be worthy except in Jesus. I cannot measure up to this. God, God has done for me more than I can even comprehend. How can I be worthy of it? How can I measure up to it? I'm not able to, but I can walk in a manner that befits this that God has done for me. God has said, you are my ambassadors. So then we are going to live our lives in light of I represent him. That's what it is to walk fitting of the calling. I am going to live my life not dependent on the systems of this world because God has an inheritance and a future for me that cannot be disturbed. It is secure and guarded for me. I don't need to worry about my future. That gives me a lot of freedom in the present because my confidence is in Him. I can walk worthy of the calling because I trust him. How do I walk worthy of the calling? How do I walk befitting this calling? It's not merely trusting. It's not merely being letting go. It's not merely staying on point and not being distracted. It's how do I relate to one another in this thing called church, in this unity that we share together? It is with all humility and gentleness. Now that word gentleness is the same word that's used in Galatians 6 as um, uh, you you that are spiritual, restore such a one, restore one who has fallen in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, humility, lest you also be tempted. When I'm coming alongside another that needs lifting up, when I'm coming alongside another that needs building up, that needs correction, that needs to be set again in steps on their walk with the Lord. They have wandered. They've gotten distracted. They've been led astray. And I'm seeking to to grab hold of them and to bring them back and to walk with them. It is not in a looking down to them. It is a realizing that I also easily get distracted. In humility, knowing that I also can easily go sideways. I am not strong enough to keep myself. And it's only by God's grace that I could be helpful in restoring somebody else. 
So that sense of humility, a recognition of my own desperate need for God's grace is what gives me a gentle attitude toward others. It's a humble gentleness. A gentleness that comes with empathy rather than judgment or condemnation. A humble gentleness befits our calling of by Jesus through grace, as Jesus himself says in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart. We are called to be humble and gentle toward one another, not driving and demanding. Easily church feels like driving and demanding, doesn't it? But watch yourself. Because a lot of times, because so much of the world forms their opinion, we're so used to opinions being formed about us and our own standing in the eyes of others being how we measure up and what we do and how we perform that we easily bring that sensitivity into the church. And it may be that others are not driving and demanding of you the way that you're perceiving because it might be that it just life has just got to feel that way. And I'm here to tell you, that is never the intention within this body that you feel driven and demanded and judged and condemned and not to measure up. That is never the intention. That does not line up with our gospel. That does not line up with who God has called us to be as his church. It is with humility and gentleness because Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is, is, is easy. My burden is light. He says, you will find rest for your souls. Rest, not stress. Now, there can be busy times in the midst of walking with the Lord and serving Him for others, of giving ourselves for others. Sometimes it does demand a lot. Sometimes it calls a lot of us. And there, there are times of stress. And yet He gives rest. There's a good busy. There are times when I'm busy, but busy isn't the point. But there's a good busy in being used by the Lord, yielded to Him in His work with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another. Now, patience is being slow to react. James describes it this way. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You know, you ask me a question on something, you ask me for a serious answer, I will give you a better answer tomorrow. I really will. Now, you may ask me, ask me for something, and I'll give you an answer today. Don't be hesitant to say, uh, well, that's one idea, but could I have your tomorrow answer? It'll be a better answer. Be slow to react. Be slow to respond. You don't have to answer the right away. Be patient. That, that, um, that, that, that patience is, is used as a patience toward others and how we react to others. It's bearing with one another. Colossians chapter 3 um, adds bearing with along with forgiving one another if you have a complaint against one another so bearing with one another is also going to include times you don't really have a complaint they're just different and that difference to you because of how you are is just a little annoying do you ever have that does your spouse snore 
can't that be a little annoying? And yet you bear with it. Well, maybe I'm assuming much here. I hope that you do. In some way, you find a way. But we bear with one another. You know the problem with kids? The problem with children is they can be so darn immature. Can't they? Ah. Oh. And yet, doesn't a wise parent need to recognize the difference, look for the difference between obstinate rebellion and childish immaturity? Immaturity we can work with. Immaturity we can mold. Immaturity we can forbear with. And we'll let them fold the clothes anyway, even though later you're going to have to go back and iron those wrinkles back out. And yet rebellion you're going to have to confront. So wisdom is knowing the difference. Being patient and forbearing with one another, giving room, allowing for the imperfect maturity of one another. You know what? I'm going I'm I'm to drop some money this morning. You may not have realized this, but your spouse is not yet perfect. They're not. I'm not yet perfect. Julie knows that. She knows that well. The rest of you are figuring that out, but Julie's been on it for years. But, uh, but we will bear with one another, knowing that we, like his, as his children, are not yet fully mature. Not done yet. And so we'll bear with one another. We'll even bear with, and I'll close with this after a lengthy message, we'll bear with leaders. I urge you, bear with your leaders in, in the church. Whether it's this church or the next church, you're, you're done with me, you go on, bear with those leaders, please. Let me give you an example out of Hebrews chapter 13. This is Hebrews chapter 13. This is at the end of, or, or, or finishing 13 long chapters, sometimes difficult and confusing, with scary phrasing at times in the book of Hebrews. And you don't know what all's going on in there, and yet you're working your way through this whole long book of Hebrews, and you get to the end in chapter 22, and he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you, I underlined this part, briefly. Really? Thirteen chapters later, and he still has the audacity to say briefly. And yet, brothers and sisters, bear with us as we lead, seeking to follow his lead. And as you bear with your leaders and make their leading, as Hebrews 13 describes it, not wearisome, but joyful, that also will serve well the unity of this body together. It's all about a little less of me and a little more of Christ's glory in this body as we yield to him together. Let's pray. This is your daughter, your daughter Hannah, De Deanna, her child Iris. All right. In that shared need together, could we bow our heads and pray?
Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, Lord, that we, in one spirit, can come to you. Sharing in your salvation, having the ability to, to call on you in the name of Jesus, your Son, who is our Savior. And because you told us that whatever we would ask in, in his name, that you would do it. Father, we pray for your intervention, for your salvation of this young lady. Lord, that she would be in such despair and hopelessness that she would consider taking her own life. Father, would you intervene? Would you, by your Spirit, Lord, open the eyes of her understanding that she could see Jesus? That she could see not only your forgiveness, but your hope. That she could see that she is truly loved, so loved, that you gave your own life in her place. She need not take her life from herself, Lord. You would give her your life, a new life, a transformed life, a life that can see ahead to your hope and your glorious future. Father, would you do that? Would you intervene here? Would you do that not only for Iris? Father, would you do that for each one here? Father, unite us in a shared hope in Jesus that carry us, carries us not only through, but, but over all of the other hurts, all of the other sorrows, all of the other that so easily would crowd in in despair and futility. God, you are our God. You have indwelt us by the Spirit of the true and living God. You have given us a shared hope in Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. You have made us into the body of Christ. And Lord, I would pray that the body of Christ, your church, representing you in this world, would wrap themselves around this young lady in the coming days. And Father, in the same way, we would do some of that for one another. That we would indeed be agents of the same comfort and mercy from God that we ourselves have received. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.